All of our stories contain bruises and scars and wounds, but the most important part of your story and mine is how you answer two simple questions. Who is Jesus and what have I done with Him? Who is Jesus to you? What have you done with Jesus in your life? As we moved in our year of the Bible into the New Testament a few Sundays ago, we focused on those two questions. We talked about how Jesus was born in the fullness of time into the midst of our dark, confused, sin-stained, wounded world. That He is the long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One, the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. He is the descendant from Abraham through whom God blesses all families on earth. He is our wounded healer who came to crush the head of the serpent. He is the son of David, the true king of Israel, come to usher in God's eternal kingdom. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. And the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who came to enact God's great rescue plan and deal with sin once and for all. In short, Jesus is the culmination of the entire Bible and He is the point of human history. And we've spent the last few Sundays discovering these truths about Jesus and what they mean for us today and how we can be His disciples, how we can be full circle followers of Jesus Christ. We have to leave behind our nets and our boats. We even have to lay down our lives to accept Jesus' invitation to follow Him. To allow Him to mold and shape us more and more into His image until we become fishers of men. Last week, we examined our own spiritual sight. Just as Jesus gave that blind man physical sight, Just as Jesus offered that woman physical drink, He also gives us spiritual sight. He gives us spiritual water to drink. Jesus can take those who are blinded by sin and give them sight so that they can see through the darkness of this world into the light of the eternal kingdom of God. And that's what we've learned so far in our journey through the Gospels. But as we all know, Jesus... Miracles and his teaching ministry and, and, and the twelve disciples that he poured his life into, they were only the prelude to the reason Jesus came. See, Jesus was born to die. And he calls us to die with him that we might also live with him. Jesus said in Luke nine twenty three, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus' entire ministry was a journey to the cross. You might remember when Peter made his great confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Immediately after that, Jesus began to tell them how he must go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the hands of men, and he will be tried, and he will be crucified and buried And three days rise again. And the disciples, they couldn't understand that. Peter didn't even want to hear that from Jesus. And then the night that he was betrayed, the night before Jesus died, he took the traditional Passover meal and he reinterpreted it to point to himself. To talk about how his death would be the ultimate sacrifice, that he was the true Passover lamb. 
His body would be broken so that we might be made whole. His blood would be poured out so that our sins could be covered, so that God's wrath would pass over us. He came to institute a new covenant. One not written on tablets of stone, but that would be written on human hearts. And that new covenant would be found in His blood shed on Calvary's cross. It is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can ever enter the kingdom of God. That we can ever go from being blind to being able to see that any of us can ever follow Jesus and become fishers of men. Jesus said in John 5.24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make mean people nice. He didn't die on the cross to make bad people good. Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead to make secular people religious. He died and rose from the grave to make dead people alive. And in Him we cross over from death to life. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul goes on to write, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. We were dead in sin. Spiritually blind. Eternally lost. But because of God's great mercy, grace and love through Jesus Christ, we can die to sin and be made alive in Him. That's what Paul says said in our New Testament reading, Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. He's saying that I have died. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That is how we can live eternal, abundant lives by living now and forever by faith in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, Jesus Himself takes up residence in us. He lives through us. Or as Jesus said in John 15, we abide in Him and He abides in us. Now, I know this is deep stuff. We could could just spend the rest of our lives meditating on these handful of verses and never fully understand the magnitude of them. But maybe this morning it can help us to see them illustrated. And I think in Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection, in Luke chapter 24, we can begin to unpack these truths of what it means to, to, be, to cross over from death to life. What does that mean for us today? We, we know that it means that someday 
When this body gets worn out, we live on forever with Him in heaven. And someday, Christ is going to return and He's going to raise up our bodies and give us new resurrection bodies like His own and we will live forever in the new heaven and the new earth. We know that. And that is great hope. That is great comfort. But what does it mean for us when we walk out these doors today to have crossed over from death to life? Let's look at the post-resurrection encounters that Jesus had with His followers and begin to unpack that today. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 24, the first thing we see is that when we cross over from death to life, we cross over from despair to hope. From despair to hope. Beginning in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So here we see Mary Magdalene and the other women. They've gone to the tomb of Jesus that morning and they went in despair. They had forgotten Jesus' many promises that He would be crucified and rise from the dead. They went with no expectation of finding the stone rolled away, much less finding the tomb empty. They went there to place spices on Jesus' body, to anoint His body as a final act of love and devotion. Imagine their surprise and horror to find the, the, the stone rolled away. And imagine they entered that tomb afraid of what they would find in there to find that it was empty. And their response was more despair. They, they wondered, did somebody steal Jesus' body? Was this one final act of, of hate? Did somebody take His body to desecrate it? It took angels showing up and speaking to them for them to remember and understand what Jesus had said to them. And in that moment, when they remembered, when, when, when they began to understand, their despair turned into hope. They came to the tomb in grief. They saw it empty with alarm, but now they left with hope to go and tell the other disciples what had happened. Now, the apostles, they also failed to remember Jesus' words. And so they thought the women were crazy. Or maybe they were just hallucinating in their grief. They were just so grief-stricken, they, they didn't know what they were saying. It was nonsense to them. Dead men don't get up and walk out and leave their tombs empty, do they? But the news alarmed Peter enough that he went to see for himself, and he also found an empty tomb. Warren Wearsby wrote this. He said, How sad it is when God's people forget His Word and live defeated lives. Here Jesus' disciples were walking around in despair, feeling defeated when their Master had just defeated death. 
They were part of a triumphant procession and they didn't even know it. Like we often do, they allowed their circumstances to override their faith and to fill their minds with discouragement and despair. You ever do that? But it didn't have to be like that. Jesus told them multiple times everything they needed to know. For example, in Luke 9.22, right before the part where He says we have to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily to follow Him, Jesus said this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The disciples had no excuse. They should have been prepared for this. Now, how much more do we have no excuse when we allow our circumstances to cause us to despair? Because we have something the disciples never had. We have the fullness of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. We have the Holy Spirit of God Himself living within us. We are without excuse. Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we may have what? Hope. Hope. If God's Word doesn't give us anything else, it should give us hope. He has given us His Word to inspire us to endure the trials of life, to guide us along the rough and narrow patches as we follow Jesus, to prepare us for what is to come. And when we forget God's Word, we wallow in the valley of despair, when instead we should be walking, leaping, and running through the garden of resurrection life, where hope springs eternal because the tomb is still empty. Paul suffered much for the Gospel. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He he suffered shipwrecks. He had a thorn in the flesh. He knew what it was like to struggle with despair. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul shares how we cannot lose heart, but rather find hope to hang on. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, beginning in verse 8, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that His life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And then in verse 14 he says, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in His presence. And then in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul is saying we have everything we need to live a victorious life. We have God's Word to show us the way. We have God's Spirit within us to empower us to follow it. And we have God's Son above us interceding on our behalf. What we need is for Jesus to give us spiritual sight so we can fix our eyes on what is unseen and eternal. 
And then we can know that our light and momentary troubles will soon give way to an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It is the risen Christ inwardly at work in us, renewing us day by day that can turn our despair to hope. And it can also turn us from confusion to clarity. Look at verse 13 there in Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus Himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing Him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see. But him they did not see. So here we meet two more disciples who were also confused and in despair. They had such high hopes for Jesus and what he represented, but now it seemed like those hopes were dashed. And they had heard the rumors that the tomb was empty, that the angels had appeared and talked to the women and told them Jesus was alive, but they just couldn't bring themselves to believe it. Perhaps it was that kind of despair and confusion that kept them from recognizing him. It says they were kept from recognizing Him. That doesn't necessarily mean God was keeping it from them. Maybe He was, but maybe it was their confusion and despair that kept them from recognizing Him. Let's continue on in verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them, what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. These men knew the Scriptures. They had seen Jesus heal. They had heard Jesus teach. And even though they heard about the angels in the empty tomb, they still didn't get it. Isn't it amazing how we can have something right in front of our faces and still miss it? Sometimes God has to hit us with a bulldozer, doesn't He? Some of my favorite movies are movies that have those kind of twist endings at the end that make you want to go back and watch the movie again just to see how it all fit together. You know, movies like Interstellar or The Sixth Sense, you know, where you get to the end and you're like, oh, that's what was going on. Oh, my goodness. And you watch it again and you see things you never saw. And it's like, okay, now the story makes sense. That's what the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ do for the entire Bible. But without a personal relationship with the risen Christ, even though we've got it right here in front of us, we can still miss it. Now, Jesus promised us that after He ascended to the Father, He would send His Holy Spirit to teach us all things 
and to remind us of everything He said. And that's what these two disciples on the road to Emmaus experienced with Jesus right there with them. He opened the Word of God. He walked them through the entire redemptive story and showed them how Jesus was at the heart of it all. To me, I think this verse 27 is one of the most remarkable verses in all the Bible. Can you imagine, Matt, having Jesus actually kind of sit down and teach your Sunday school class? That's what these two disciples got to experience. You know, the goal of the Bible project and our our year of the Bible has been that very thing. To show us how the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus. That's kind of the purpose. If you go to the BibleProject.com, that's what they say. That their whole point is to show how the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus. My, fam- my family's favorite children's Bible, and I know it's the Tarvers as well, it's the Jesus Storybook Bible. I highly recommend it, even if you're an adult and you don't have kids. I like to just pull it out and read it. It's truly amazing. But its subtitle says, Every story whispers His name. That is so true. But without the Holy Spirit living within you, opening your mind to the truth of Scripture, you can't really see it. You can't have that clarity. You'll only be confused. Look with me at verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if He were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. It wasn't until Jesus broke bread with them that they realized who Jesus was. Now I used to think, and this may be true, but I used to think that it was just simply because When Jesus did that, it made them think of the Last Supper in the upper room. Or maybe they thought of Jesus feeding the 5,000. But you know, breaking blessing and breaking bread was a daily event. And this is what every Jewish family did. Every husband or father in a Jewish home, when they had a meal, he'd take the bread, he'd bless it, he'd break it, and he'd give it to his family. So this was a very common thing. What if instead... It was simply the act of sharing table fellowship with Jesus that opened their eyes to His presence. Isn't it often in the common things of life, the small everyday events and blessings that Jesus comes to us and reveals Himself to us and calls us to live for Him faithfully in just the everyday things of life? You know, as Christians, we focus so much on education, especially as Baptists. You know, and, 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 you know, we come and we hear preachers preach. We go to Sunday school. We hear teachers teach. We come back on Sunday night and, and we go to other classes and Wednesday night and we love to have book studies and we love education. But the problem is that education too often focuses on the transfer of knowledge from preacher to congregation or from Sunday school teacher to class. And we've seen here in this story that even if Jesus shows up and gives you a crash course on the Bible... It can go in one ear and right out the other. 
It takes more than just information. It takes transformation. Rick Warren said Jesus did not die on the cross and rise from the dead just so we could live comfortable, well-adjusted lives. His purpose is far deeper. He wants to make us like Himself before He takes us to heaven. This is our greatest privilege, our immediate responsibility, and our ultimate destiny. And the only way that we can be spiritually transformed into Christ-likeness is to have an intimate personal, daily relationship with Jesus. We need to break bread with Jesus every day as we spend time in His Word and in prayer and in worship. We need to come together as a congregation weekly to break bread together in the presence of Jesus Christ. And these disciples, afterward they talked about a warming in their hearts as Jesus explained the Scripture to them. See, opening our eyes to Jesus isn't just intellectual. It's not just a thing we do in our head. It involves our hearts as well. It's about love and hope and faith and trust. It isn't always rational. And at times it defies human logic. They had to feel the truth of Jesus in the core of their being. When when we're in an intimate fellowship with Jesus, yes, we're going to learn a great deal. But more than that, we will feel and experience things that can't be taught. They can only be caught as we spend time in Jesus' presence. And the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we're going to begin to think and act and talk and love like Jesus. It kind of seems counterintuitive, but... The way to clarity in our minds is through the warmth of fellowship with Jesus in our hearts. Yes, the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. We can embrace its truths thoughtfully with our minds, but we must first experience it transformationally in our hearts. And then we can move from confusion to clarity, and then we can move from doubt to faith. Look at verses 36 and 37. While they were still talking about this, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled, frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. Isn't it interesting, joy and amazement as a cause for doubt? It's almost like we say today, man, that's just too good to be true. Jesus stood before them and it just seemed too good to be true. And they didn't believe it because they were so overwhelmed with joy and amazement. But Jesus didn't judge them for it. He didn't get impatient. He's so gentle. He's so kind. So patient with them, inviting them to touch Him. Giving them a display of the reality of His presence by asking them for something to eat. Jesus gives them tangible evidence that He is alive. He's not a museum piece. You know, don't touch. Don't take any pictures, right? He says, touch me. Look, it's me. I'm alive. Verse 44, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about Me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, the totality of Scripture. 
Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day... Notice here the resurrection faith gives us two beautiful gifts. First, it gives us peace for our mind, uh, brings peace to our hearts. The disciples were afraid, and when we're afraid, we're often afraid of things we don't understand, aren't we? They couldn't understand Jesus died and now He's alive, so they were afraid of it. And doubt and fear are close companions. When we doubt someone's intentions, we're leery of them. When we doubt that something is safe, we avoid it. And they were afraid that Jesus was a ghost. They doubted that He was alive, so they backed away. Not sure it was really Him. But Jesus gave them peace for their fearful hearts. But secondly, it also brings understanding to our minds. Doubt, yes, it's a spiritual issue. It makes our hearts afraid. But doubt is also an intellectual issue that makes our minds closed to the truths of the Bible. Without the mind of Christ revealed to us by the Spirit of God, we cannot comprehend God's purpose or will. The redemptive story of the Bible makes no sense to the natural mind. Clarity and faith comes, though, through a relationship with Jesus. You know, if Jesus' own followers here who had experienced and knew all that they did about Jesus, if they had a tough time at this, should we be surprised that people today, 2,000 years later, have a tough time with it? We shouldn't. Lost people are going to misunderstand and misrepresent the gospel. They're going to they're gonna mischaracterize the church. We shouldn't be alarmed when lost people think and act like lost people. So what do we do? Well, we must develop a relationship with Jesus. We must grow in our understanding of His Word and His ways through prayer and Bible study and dependence on God's Spirit. And then we should live out and proclaim that truth the best ways that we can. Beyond that, we need to be patient like Jesus was. We need to be gentle with people like Jesus was. We need to pray for God to open their minds and their eyes and warm their hearts to His truth and just love them the way that Jesus does. Peter Marshall said, the stone was rolled away from the door not to permit Christ to come out, but to enable the disciples to go in. God wants people to go in and see Jesus, to gain that clarity so they can understand and have faith so they can believe. God doesn't want to make this too difficult. The empty tomb is there for the world to see. It is an open invitation to everyone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Fourth, when we move from death to life, we move from weakness to witness. Look at verses 47 through 49. Jesus continues to say, And repentance... And forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. What does a witness do in a courtroom? A witness is supposed to truthfully tell what they have seen and heard and what they've experienced. The word witness is found 29 times in the book of Acts alone. Because that is what we are. We are witnesses that Jesus is risen, that He is at work in our lives and in our world today. But we're not just witnesses of something that happened, like someone might be a witness of a car wreck, or, let's be happy, witness of a wedding, right? People witness a wedding. We are not just witnesses of something that happened. We are witnesses of someone that we know. 
that we have a personal relationship with, that has radically changed our lives, who is actively a part of our lives. We are witnesses, and we live out our witness every day. You know, one of the greatest pieces of evidence of the reality and truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead is the amazing transformation that took place in the disciples. Before the resurrection... This was a ragtag bunch of guys that fought and argued and they were self-centered. They jockeyed for position. They didn't understand anything Jesus said. He talked multiple times about how dense they were and how little faith they had. And then when Jesus needed them most, they scurried and they hid. One of them denied him. One of them betrayed him. They all abandoned him. Yet something changed. When we turn to the book of Acts, we find these men out in the open, boldly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, working miracles in His name, suffering persecution for Him, even death for Him, and not a single one of them ever reneged on their story. What happened? They saw the risen Christ. That's what happened. Resurrection power made available through the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. Jesus told them before He ascended in Acts 1.8, He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be My witnesses. And that same power is at work in every follower of Jesus Christ today. He takes our weaknesses and He transforms them into His witness. And finally, when we move from death to life, we move from worry to to worship. Look at how this chapter ends. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. You remember how this chapter started? How that first Easter morning started? It started with the women going to the tomb worried. Worried that they wouldn't be able to open the tomb, to remove that heavy stone. And now look how the story ends. Because the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty, their worry has turned into worship. That's what the resurrection of Jesus does for each of us. We can cast our cares upon Him because we know He cares for us. We can look beyond the troubles and trials of this life because the empty tomb stands as a reminder that this life isn't all that there is. Psalm 22 is a powerful prophetic description of what Jesus endured on Calvary. That was our Old Testament reading. And that psalm begins with Jesus' cry on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how it begins. And it gives us a blow-by-blow description of everything that happened to Jesus on that cross. But remember how it ended? Psalm 22 ends with, They will proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Jesus has done it. What has Jesus done? He's defeated sin and death. He's conquered hell and crushed the serpent's head. He has canceled the written code that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. He has disarmed the powers and authorities and made public spectacles of them, triumphing them over by the cross. And because of Jesus' victory, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He is the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for His sheep and took it up again. How can we not worship instead of worry? 
And how can we do anything other than proclaim to others the good news that He has done it? Have you crossed over from death to life today? Do you stand as someone who has received new life in Christ? You've died to your sins. You've repented and turned from them. And you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That this life is not all that there is. And you want to live for Him and become like Him. That you can live with Him forever someday. If you've never made that decision. If you've never crossed over from death to life by placing your trust in Jesus. I invite you to come and do that this morning. Maybe you have done that, but you've never made it public and you've never followed Jesus in baptism. Baptism is a picture of that death to life. It's a symbol that we've crossed over and all things have been made new. Have you followed the Lord in baptism? Maybe this morning God is asking you to to join our church, to unite with us, to experience this resurrection life with this community of faith. As our instrumentalists are coming up, I want you to stand Let's stand together. I want you to consider where you stand with Jesus today. Do you worry more than you worship? Do you allow the circumstances of your life to cause you to despair instead of hope, to doubt instead of have faith, to be confused instead of have clarity? Do you let your weaknesses keep you from witnessing instead of letting Jesus Christ turn your weaknesses into a witness? How has He spoken to you today? You respond as the Spirit leads.